Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Billy Griffith with Emerging Revolutionary War. I am currently sitting next to, via Zoom, author Christian McBurney. And for those of you who don't know, he has most recently published a book called George Washington's Nemesis, The Outrageous Treason and Unfair Court-Martial of Major General Charles Lee During the Revolutionary War. Uh, Christian McBurney himself is an attorney out of Washington, Washington, D.C. He also manages one of Rhode Island's most famous blogs, history blogs, and uh, he's the author of uh, five books and uh, various articles, as you were telling me too. Um, So tonight we will be doing a book discussion about Christian's new book. Uh, We we, will be kind of diving deep into what his book discusses, as well as kind of picking his brain for his analysis, see if uh, he has really any new treatments, which he does, spoiler alert, of Charles Lee and how we perceive him today. So before we start off, uh, I want to ask you, you know, you've also written a book called Kidnapping the Enemy, Special Operations to Capture General Charles Lee and Richard Prescott. Now, what keeps you draw, keeps drawing you back to Charles Lee? Because he's definitely not a character that a lot of people really are interested in or will write a book about. Well, I think he's very interesting because he's um, a very uh, remarkable personality, probably the strongest personality of any general on either side of the Revolutionary War. Uh, by the way, thank you, Billy, for inviting me, and I'm, I'm glad to be here. And thank, thank you, you for being here, too. And congratulations on your book on Mammoth. So we'll, we'll get to chatting about that as well. Thank you. But uh, yeah, as you said, I, uh, I started out interested in Rhode Island. I wrote a book on the Rhode Island campaign, the Battle of Rhode Island, the definitive study of that so far. And then I said, well, what do I do after that? What, what's important in Rhode Island? Well, General Richard Prescott was captured uh, by an amazing special operation by American troops in the middle of the night. But I couldn't do a book on that, so I paired it with the reason why he was captured. Uh, Americans wanted to get a general to exchange for Charles Lee, because Lee had been captured at Basking Ridge in New Jersey in uh, November 1776. So I paired the 
too. The Kidnapping the Enemy book was the Charles Lee, the capture of, of Charles Lee and uh, General Prescott. So that's what I became uh, familiar with, uh, with Lee. And he certainly is a remarkable personality. <laughs> so kind of what, where you, go ahead. I do think, I, you know, what I've tried to do in both books um, is to be objective. Uh, Charles Lee does have some biographies about him, recent ones. Uh, one by Phil Pappas uh, takes a position that he's a, a very sympathetic in everything he does. Uh, he's a misunderstood. Um, he was a, a radical Republican, so it's all good. And then on the other side, one by Dominic Mazzaghetti, which is everything's bad about Lee, um, and he was a, a bad person. He certainly. So I, I take more of a middle ground, as you can tell from the title of the book. Uh, it's the outrageous treason of Charles Lee, but also the unfair court-martial of him when he was at uh, Monmouth. Yeah, and Charles Lee himself definitely was a, a conundrum of a man. Um, so it, it, it's definitely is, it's, it's just difficult to kind of take just one side against him if you're trying to be uh, objective. But um, as we move into kind of, mention he's kind of a conundrum, like what makes him a conundrum? Who is Charles Lee? I, reading your book, I saw probably a fascinating quote by him. You mentioned how he was a radical Republican. Um, in 1773, before he comes to America to reside here, he writes somebody and says, liberty I adore, where she lives, that is my country. Yeah, yeah, and that, I think that's an important part of him. Um, he uh, did come from a good family. He came from a better family than just about any other American general. He also received a better education, uh, more widely read, had more military experience as a soldier of fortune, also working with the British Army. But he became estranged from the British establishment. Um, he actually had an argument with King George III in person because he didn't, didn't uh, promote him quickly enough. So he, he just said it was perverted to have a king, uh, which, you know, right now, I think we can agree with. <laughs> and so he, um, uh, and he also didn't have much chance of being further promoted because he had alienated so many people with his acerbic personality in Britain. So why not go to America? It's Republican. He did, you know, he did support the Republican principles, at least initially. <laughs> initially, yeah. And it's interesting because the Charles Lee at the outbreak of the war certainly is not the Charles Lee come and just even a year after the war begins, uh, his perceptives really do change rather quickly. And we'll get into that uh, in, in a little bit. Um, but we talked about, you know, Charles Lee, he, he is coming from a military background. And by far at the beginning of the American Revolution, he is the most experienced officer in the entire Continental Army. So kind of um, bring us up to his capture in late 1776. What, what laurels does Charles Lee have where at some points, he thinks he should actually be the one commanding uh, the Continental Army himself. Yeah, just uh, building up to the time before his capture, he actually did perform some good services. Um, and he was, uh, everyone, you could tell, he was very arrogant, showed off his knowledge of, and would quote from military experts, Frederick the Great and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, he actually, when he was actually in the field, he did pretty good service. One of the most interesting things he did was in South Carolina. The expedition in 1776 uh, by um, Clinton and um, uh, Parker, Admiral Parker, um, you know, it was aiming to take over Charleston. Lee was appointed by the Continental Congress to take over leadership, so he was in command. But he realized 
you know, he came a little late and, uh, you know, Governor Rutledge had things well organized. John, or excuse me, William Moultrie was uh, building that fort, Fort Sullivan. And so he didn't assert himself. He, he kind of said, you know, I really think this fort's not going to work out. You should probably abandon it, which he was right because if the British had gotten around the island, they would have just raked the side. It was only a one-sided fort. But, you know, he didn't press himself too much. He didn't try to dominate and um, he allowed things to go on and it turned out pretty well. And he actually got credit for it, probably too much credit because really Moultrie and Rutledge and others got the credit, should have gotten the credit. But he, uh, you know, at, um, uh, when Washington was kind of waffling about whether to evacuate Manhattan Island, he said, you got to leave. Uh, King's Bridge is the last bridge. It's, otherwise, we're going to get stuck on this island. We, we've got to leave immediately. Washington appreciated that. He mentioned that several times afterwards. And uh, he gave some advice in the Battle of White Plains that was well taken. So um, he did a good job in Virginia, uh, in Boston. When he originally uh, came there, he led one of the divisions. He helped train uh, Nathaniel Green and um, John Sullivan. So, you know, he did some good work early in the war. Yeah, no, definitely. And he definitely was somebody that, as you mentioned, like Washington really did respect his advice and any suggestions that he made, you know, Washington really, uh, really took them seriously. And even just his presence on a field, um, talking about Fort Moultrie uh, down in Charleston. I know you wrote your book, um, pretty well known too, that when Lee arrives actually in Fort Moultrie, while it's under fire to inspect it, um, the men see him as this cool, collected inspiration, even though he himself physically uh, has been described that he wasn't much of an inspiration, kind of ugly, very thin, not too tall. But um, Moultrie himself would write that just his presence was worth over a thousand men. Yeah, yeah, and he was, uh, there was a, you know, right in the middle of the artillery duel, so cannons, balls were flailing everywhere, and his uh, aid was shrinking, and, are you sure, General, you want to go over here? So, yeah, he, he, he was a brave guy. He uh, he was shot at the battle, uh, at the invasion of uh, Fort Ticonderoga in the French and Indian War. He was wounded in a charge. So he was definitely brave, personally. Yeah, and um, yeah, he definitely served here during the French and Indian War. That's right, and uh, we'll probably get into it later how he feels um, that the war should actually be prosecuted. Uh, but definitely, maybe his experience here in North America during the French and Indian War could have played a big part in that. Hmm. So, move, moving on now. Um, obviously, we, New York has fallen. Now we talked about uh, the abandonment of Manhattan. Washington's column and Lee's column are now separated. What becomes of Charles Lee as Washington is retreating across New Jersey? Well, Lee was left in um, near White Plains with about 6,000 men, although they, he was losing men every day as enlistments were coming up. Uh, and because Washington didn't know if Howe was gonna invade New England or if he was gonna go towards Philadelphia. Turns out he was gonna go towards Philadelphia and New Jersey. Um, and, um, uh, Lee at that point is saying, you know, Washington just isn't the right general. You know, we've lost the Battle of Long Island. He got kicked out of Manhattan. He's wishy-washy, which is the worst thing you can be. And um, I think he thinks, as I say, arguing my kidnapping the enemy book, that he thinks that he should become the head of the Continental Army. But uh, he almost was wishing, I think, for Washington to to get defeated. So he kind of what Washington kept. It should really be a really good idea if you came to my aid and, and uh, join my army. 
with your troops. But Washington was not at that point um, confident enough of himself to order Lee to do that. So about the fourth time he finally ordered Lee to do that, Lee finally did it after waffling even more. Uh, but then and that's when a very unfortunate thing happened to Lee, uh, at least for Lee's perspective. Um, he was uh, uh, traveling behind his troops, three miles behind his troops, and he stayed at an, at an inn. It was an area, there weren't many nice houses. Uh, his troops were three miles away, camped. He, well, this nice opportunity to stay in, in a decent inn, get sleep in a real bed. And he stayed in the bed. But, you know, in those days, uh, loyalists knew everything. Patriots knew everything. And the word got out. The great Charles Lee is sleeping in this um, uh, inn. And it just so happened that um, Earl Harcourt, uh, colonel of the um, 16th Dragoons, uh, elite British uh, cavalry regiment, was doing some reconnaissance. They knew that Lee was in the area. So they were going to check it out. And they heard from loyalists where Lee was staying at Basking Ridge. So they were able to um, surround the inn. Uh, Bannister Tarleton, the great fierce cavalry leader did it. And uh, after a fierce but violent struggle, uh, they captured him. And uh, Lee was uh, brought to New York City and he was a captive for 15 months during the war. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting you say, you know, there was a struggle before uh, the men guarding Lee were overtaken. As I was growing up, I would always hear that Lee, it was believed that Lee kind of walked out and surrendered himself right away as if he was trying to go to the British ranks. Uh, right. Obviously not right. the case, though. <laughs> no, that's right. A lot of, lot of myths about that, but uh, there yeah. two Continental soldiers were killed and uh, there was firing inside the house where he was. And uh, so he was, he had to surrender. Mm -hmm. So now... Um, Charles Lee has been captured, and he is at first taken from New Brunswick, New Jersey, correct? And then after that, eventually taken to New York City. And, and it's during this period uh, that you write, he really does start to change perspectives in regards to this war um, that he was so ardently for at the beginning. That's right. He really underwent a, a change of mindset. He had been a firm believer in Republican uh, values and firm believer in the militia. He thought that the Americans army should be mostly mostly made up of militia uh, but he was disappointed the battle of long island the militia ran away um, not as he thought a hundred thousand militias should join the american army but nothing near that number came up so um, he was he was disappointed and he didn't think washington was the right leader he thought he was the right leader he um, i think essentially thought this was a lost cause and he came to the conclusion that uh, it was in the best interest of America to um, uh, renounce the Declaration of Independence uh, and go back to British rule. So, and so it was kind of shocking. Well, the first thing he did was he asked, um, uh, sent a letter to Washington saying, I'd like to have two or three members of Congress come and visit me for the public interest. Well, what could have been the public interest? It was obviously to negotiate a peace and uh, Congress saw through it right away and they said no. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, several months beforehand, there was an actual peace uh, negotiations with uh, um, Admiral um, Howe and Franklin was there, John Adams was there and Lee railed against them. Why did Adams and Franklin go there? There was no possible way that the House could have provided any good terms of peace. 
nothing had changed. And yet now here we have Lee asking for a, a negotiated conference. Do you think he uh, he really was at that point losing hope in the American cause or was he kind of growing desperate because he himself was now prisoner with potentially no prospects of rejoining that cause anytime soon? Yeah, I mean, you know, one argument is you know, a lot of historians have poo-pooed this period where he was, I argue, committed treason and that, well, maybe he had a temporary, um, you know, was worried about being hanged because how said word to him that basically he was going to investigate whether he should be hanged because he had been a member, uh, been in the British colonel, lieutenant colonel, um, and he now was taking up arms against the king. But he had uh, resigned his position uh, as a British lieutenant colonel, so that wasn't really valid. But um, no, I, I argue in the book that he, he didn't have a temporary concern about his own personal safety. It was, he had a, he had the same view for 15 months basically that the war should end, America could win, or there'd be, it would suffer so much it wouldn't be worth it. So therefore, um, America should renounce this Declaration of Independence and rejoin the British Crown. Pretty shocking, but a consistent view for 15 months while he was a captive. And besides asking for that uh, commission to essentially discuss peace negotiations, what else does Lee do while he's held in confinement that uh, Oh, you argue is treason. Yeah. Uh, the main thing he does was he, um, in uh, late uh, February, early March, he pens an eight-page plan on how the House, William Howe, the commander-in-chief of the British Army, and Admiral Howe, the uh, commander of the British Navy in North America, how they can most quickly defeat the American Army, the Continental Army. Uh, that's pretty shocking. He had, um, he must have known and gotten news that Howe was interested, William Howe was in, in um, taking over Philadelphia next after, after New York. And he had all, he had a elaborate plan. He sent, you know, one third of your troops overland, sent two thirds by sea. Uh, the loyalists in Maryland and Frederick County area are, are going to support you. Uh, so he had uh, taking over Alexandria, Annapolis, um, so he had a pretty elaborate plan, and he said he sincerely believed in it, that it was, um, he uh, didn't believe in the American cause anymore, and he would be happy to negotiate a peace so that the Americans could rejoin uh, Britain. I mean, just amazing, considering what had happened. America had declared its independence. Uh, it had been fighting in all these desperate battles. The British had been imprisoning Americans now, and terrible situations. Uh, so there's a lot of bitterness. Uh, so it was pretty remarkable uh, that he, he would do this. And yet, uh, after he was captured, of course, the Washington had great victories at Trenton and Princeton. So there was hope there, but he didn't really appreciate that. Was there evidence that Lee did actually learn of the victories at Trenton and Princeton? Because he seemed to be going into the 1777 with still the disasters around like New York, fresh in his mind, like nothing else had happened since then. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I think he almost throughout the 15 months, and even when he returned to the Continental Army, it was like nothing had changed, and, and uh, no one had grown, and the Continental Army hadn't improved and learned from its lessons. That, that just wasn't true. Uh, but that was his perspective, I think. Um, uh, he did not appreciate how important Trenton and Princeton were, and, and that the Continental Army was, through experience, and Washington himself, were improving over time.
Yeah, and um, going back to the peace negotiations, obviously, uh, or actually the, the plan that he had submitted to the, or to one of the Howe brothers' uh, secretaries, right? So Henry, was it Strachey? Strachey was the name? Right. Yeah. yeah uh, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, that's it. Strachey. Yeah. Yeah. And just by doing that, um, even if, say, even if the Howe's never actually saw the plans, uh, you look at this whole situation through what treason is defined in the Articles of War. You said just trying to aid the enemy in this regard, regardless if Lee was just having fun with it because he was bored or if he was serious, it, it doesn't matter who saw it, he was still discussing this with the enemy, that that makes him a traitor. Right, I mean, and, and you're, what you're kind of alluding to is that there's no evidence that how the Howe brothers actually read this plan. Normally when a British uh, doc, when a document was read by a British Admiral General, it would be marked as read. This plan wasn't. But it was marked by Strachey as received. Uh, and it said Mr. Lee's plan right on it. I actually had the opportunity to hold it at New York Public Library. So that was very cool. Uh, and it was definitely in his handwriting. No question about that. Uh, all historians agree. I've compared it as well. And it expresses the same views he held for 15 months. So there's nothing surprising in there. Um, but um, what was the question again? <laughs> no, you basically, basically answered it. it. Yeah, it was regardless of what happened, it still is treason. It doesn't matter yeah. if the House saw it or not. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and the, uh, the articles of, of, of um, military law said um, it, you corresponding with the enemy was treason. And corresponding to the enemy is making available, sending and delivering to the enemy correspondence. Uh, basically without permission. I think it had to be treacherous, even though that wasn't in the word, but I think it had to be treacherous. And it was treacherous, obviously. This is how you defeat the American army. And so it didn't have to be read. It was intended, it was delivered to a British soldier, British um, aid, Strachey, uh, the aid to the Howe brothers. Uh, so that was, that completed the treason right there, even if Howe had never even read it. I think he must have learned about its contents. I don't know if he read it or not, but that wasn't really necessary. The intent was there. You know, he, he, he addressing was how all you how brothers, you're going to be very moderate in your terms. And I hope you're moderate in your terms with peace with the Americans. So he clearly, you know, it was addressed to them. Yeah. And he himself, obviously, he had no authority whatsoever to be discussing peace terms with the how brothers. Right. And if you're a general, you're it's okay to discuss peace uh, in a battle, you know, if you're you know, surrounded, uh, you're a fort and then they're discussing peace terms but to uh, take the political role of renouncing the declaration of independence without authority uh, that's just uh, that's beyond the pale it shows a real arrogance in his part and i know before uh, i read your book your your analysis when it comes to this topic of treason you really don't hold back any punches going after them you know it's just real matter of fact this is what happened this is how we need to look at it where a lot of historians i feel looking back they kind of, in hindsight, they say, oh, well, nothing really came out of this plan. You know, there's known evidence really that the house even saw it. And then obviously Lee ends up coming back to the American army and fighting. It's not like where Arnold, where his plan is discovered and then he jumps ship and now he is officially a traitor. Just because right. Lee, it's, it, and nothing came out of Arnold's plan either. West Point remained in American hands. So mm. it's well, a, it's you've, very- uh, you've, you've uh, unpacked a lot there. So uh, let's, let's start with number one. I think you might have been one of those persons before you read my book. 
that uh, you were persuaded that uh, initially, oh, this is just a momentary lapse, not a big deal. Uh, you know, Philip Pappas in his biography of Lee hardly mentions it in you know, one or two paragraphs, that's it. Um, but um, I think you would agree now it was a pretty significant deal and, and it really does look like treason. I mean, would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, especially looking now. I mean, he's not just like some common soldier pitching an idea of how the Americans can be defeated. This is a second in command of all American forces. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is not somebody of insignificance. Right. And, and like he, he kept said, it. He kept it secret too, uh, which was interesting because he allowed him to, by keeping a secret, he could, if the British won, well, I was trying to help you out and negotiate an end of the war. If the Americans won, he could, or if the British didn't win immediately, he could always rejoin the Americans as the number two. So, pretty, pretty sly. That America, they never, Americans never learned about it during his lifetime, and, and it wasn't known about this correspondence until 75 years later. And uh, as I also say, you know, there's, there's lots of letters. I discovered some new letters and new material, uh, but he basically had the same views for 15 months. So it wasn't wasn't just his plan either. Yeah, it really is incredible just how he did become an entirely different person in just a matter of months. Yeah. And Arnold, was he as bad as Arnold? No. Arnold took about $1.2 million uh, you know, bribe. Uh, he took up arms against America. He went to England after the war. Lee did none of those things. But that doesn't mean Lee didn't commit treason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just never was accused of it at the time. Um, right. Maybe some people were suspicious, but... Um, yeah, yeah. That, I think it is a big difference because Arnold, he kind of committed to that treason. Lee, you know, in his mind, he was going to be playing both sides. That way he always came out on top. Yeah. <laughs> but um, smart. <laughs> yeah, he's smart. So eventually Lee does. Um, after about 16 months, so you said or so, in, in confinement, um, he does return to the Continental Army or he's paroled at least before he returns. And, and um, there were times where we thought that the Continental Congress was just going to forget about him, right? And they weren't going to try to, to open up any negotiations for an exchange. Yeah, and that may be one reason why he promoted this idea of having three congressmen come join him, because he thought that the, or maybe writing the plan, he thought the Congress may have ignored him. But he did get word a few weeks later that Congress said to, to the Howe brothers, uh, you know, you have to protect him, and if you treat him as a, you know, a... a uh, traitor. He was like accused of being a traitor on all sides because he had left the British army. Then we're going to hang one of your guys, one of your British uh, officer prisoners. So that showed him that they were behind him at that point. But that was after he wrote his plan. Mm -hmm. But still, he had the same ideas throughout 15, 16 months of the captivity. So Now, before he is actually uh, allowed to return to American lines, he does meet with both William Howe and Henry Clinton, correct? Yeah, uh, he had a chance to be uh, to be uh, um, exchanged in New York, but he actually wanted to go to Philadelphia to meet with William Howe, and he talked to him about you know the negotiation, negotiated peace, and uh, so Washington was kind of upset about that, but went along with it. And then uh, finally, he does meet up with the Continental Army at Valley Forge. And by then, right. as we've been discussing, the Continental Army isn't the Continental Army that he, he remembers. Well, right. He thinks it is. And he immediately criticizes Washington. Oh, he's not a good leader. He's, uh, he says, uh, 
you know, at that point, von Steuben had done a great job training Continental troops. And, but he says, oh, American army shouldn't be uh, training to meet the British regulars on the field, you know, match for them. We ought to be doing more of a guerrilla war, staying away uh, with, you know, from set peace battles. And uh, so he has a very different viewpoint, uh, a little outmoded, um, you know, that might've been a decent view earlier in the war. But at this point, uh, with the French now coming to the aid of the Americans, it was uh, it was really outmoded, I think. And he even, uh, before he's actually exchanged officially when he's still on parole, he rides up to York, Pennsylvania, right, and actually tries to promote his plans to, uh, and even potentially feel out what their opinions are on a negotiated peace with a lot of men in, in Congress. Yeah, I mean, he, he promised how I'm going to make a good effort. He might have been concerned that how, if he did make a good effort, how would expose that he had written this plan. So he made somewhat of an effort to feel people, uh, congressmen out, Henry Lawrence included, about negotiated peace. But he got a total, um, you know, stiff arm. <laughs> you got to be crazy, you know. So he he just didn't. He had no concept of what the reality was. All right. So now, uh, come May. Lee rejoins the Continental Army officially. He resumes his position as second in command. Uh, just right after that, a new campaign is about to begin as the British are evacuating Philadelphia and moving across New Jersey to get to New York City. Washington crosses the Delaware once again in pursuit of them. Uh, Lee is leading the vanguard of that army through New Jersey. And eventually he's going to be leading the vanguard at what will become the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse fought near uh, Freehold of Manalp in New Jersey today. And this is where I think Charles Lee would, where I was always sympathetic to him, because I do feel this is what he's remembered for what happens that day, his most famous moment or infamous moment, um, that he really does get the short end of the stick. And there is really no objectivity when it comes to analyzing his role until uh, your book, as well as um, Fatal Sunday, by, uh, your book, and your book as well. Yeah. And my book as well, too, <laughs> which obviously took on the, the tone of some of the, the more recent looks at it. And again, altered kind of my thinking of it. Uh, but discuss a little bit. What is Lee's role on the morning of June 28th? Well, he's uh, he, he's got uh, half the Continental Army with him. Uh, Washington's about 10 miles behind, so not yet in support positions. But he is instructed to attack the enemy. Now, it looks to me uh, that he wasn't ordered to get in a general action. Washington just wanted to attack, have him attack the rear of the British Army, show how the Americans' uh, uh, training had really improved and they were willing to uh, you know, go on the offensive and have a nice little small victory. That's what he was looking for, I think. Um, and um, so uh, Lee was trying to do that. Uh, Clinton was retreating. He was going up to Sandy Hook. That's where Admiral Howe was going to pick him up with, uh, with his fleet and take him to New York City. Uh, Howe, uh, Clinton was in, had three divisions. He had the uh, rear guard, say 1,600 troops in total. Then he had uh, about 2,000 elite uh, soldiers, the, the guards, grenadiers, light infantry, some of the best troops in the world, about three miles north of Freehold. And then uh, another three miles was the main body of Clinton's troops. Uh, 6,000 in total. And Lee had 4,600, so he was outnumbered if you looked at all of them, but he was hoping to uh, uh, make, uh, to um, capture the, the rear guard. And he had actually made plans to do that. Once, once his troops arrived, 
He's, he had a plan of encircling the rear guard. He told Wayne, don't attack the center of the British, kind of play with them a little bit, get their attention, but don't drive them away. We're going to go behind them and um, uh, then surround them and capture them. And so he, by doing that, he was conforming with the orders to attack the enemy. Um, the problem was things didn't uh, work out as, as he had planned. Uh, Clinton uh, very smartly saw what was happening and turned his troops around and started marching them pell-mell towards Freehold. And uh, he lost 60 men that day from heat stroke. It was an incredibly hot day and he marched them so fast that men were falling and just tragic, terrible deaths. But that's what Clinton wanted to do. He, had, he saw his chance to uh, attack uh, the Continental Army. And uh, Cornwallis, uh, in charge of the elite group of 2,000 soldiers, was closer. So he started marching towards um, uh, Freehold. And, um, and Lafayette, meanwhile, has three regiments, much smaller than Cornwallis's, and he's marching towards Freehold. So uh, it thinks it looks too good. And Lee says, all right, I, I guess I better drop that plan. He took another uh, brigade and started marching with it towards Freehold. But that's when things really fell apart. Yeah, and I know um, Lee would get kind of flack um, for not being quick enough to kind of pounce on uh, Clinton's rear guard that morning. He was very cautious going, uh, getting his troops in a position, sending out men kind of, and doesn't really know what's in his front, how many troops are in his front. Um, so people criticized him for being too cautious earlier that morning before he finally makes a move. But in hindsight, you can look at it and say, well, if he was any quicker, he would have fell on basically the entire British army there before they right, actually- Right, right. So when he, when he did get there, there were some delays, as you said. Um, he got some bad intelligence from New Jersey militia. Uh, so he did kind of delay things a bit. But if he had gone straight there, um, as I said, when he got there at 10 a.m., Clinton was six miles away, Cornwallis three miles away. And, and so if he had gotten there two hours earlier, Clinton would have been, what, two miles away? I mean, it would have, would have been a lot worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, so now we is in position. Um, things start to fall apart for him. Uh, all of a sudden, his troops, they begin to fall back, many of them without any orders. Uh, a lot of the blame later will be placed on Brigadier General Charles Scott. Correct? Right, right. And what happened was, you know, Scott saw Lee uh, Brigade marching towards Freehold. And so the two brigades, Lafayette's as well. And he thought they were retreating. They were going back to this road that was going to lead them back uh, to where they'd come from. Uh, but they weren't retreating. They were going towards Freehold. They, every step they took was closer to the British Army, which was also going towards Freehold. So he was totally wrong. Huh, you know mistaken and wasn't intentional but without any orders he or he uh, ordered his brigade the largest in lee's army to reverse his course and retreat through the woods and he worse still he convinced brigadier general maxwell who was behind him with another large brigade to retreat as well and maxwell is like his senior but he um i think he in this situation he was uh, kind of dominated by scott's uh, strong personality so Suddenly, 2,300 troops, half of Lee's command has disappeared from the field, just disappeared. And he finds this out after um, he had sent two aides to tell Maxwell and Scott, keep the center, stay firm. Well, those two aides couldn't find Scott and Maxwell. 
So then, uh, you know, what does Lee do? Um, uh, he sees uh, 2,000 Cornwallis' troops heading towards, towards um, uh, Freehold. His aides also saw Clinton's army, uh, main body, marching. It was one dramatic testimony. Uh, I saw, you know, there were men 40, 40 men wide and columns as far as I could see. You know, clearly it was the main body. So Lee was about to be uh, outnumbered three to one. So he did not want to retreat. Um, he still kept his troops going towards Freehold and taking defensive positions outside of Freehold. But uh, Cornwallis's 2,000 troops, some of the best troops in the world, the flower of the British Army, were about to pounce into uh, Freehold on them. And uh, he had this ravine behind him. If they got caught in a ravine, that could have destroyed all of his troops. And he decided to order retreat. Um, of course, he hadn't retreated first, uh, then uh, Scott and Maxwell. And to order retreat, that's tough. And that's a difficult thing to do. It's, it's really hard, but it was the right move. And I argue he saved half the American army by doing that. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. Uh, and you do argue in your book, too, that now we're approaching that moment where Washington is about to arrive on the field. And all he's seeing are troops kind of in disorder, marching to the rear away from the British army rather than towards it. So in his mind, he's obviously furious, thinking that Charles Lee had not fulfilled what he believed were his orders of attacking the rear of the British army and pinning them in place. So he gets word from a Pfeiffer that, that everybody's retreating. Nobody knows what's going on uh, from some New Jersey troops as well. He hears the same news. So now he's bolting off, trying to find what the actual situation is that's unfolding. And he meets up with Charles Lee. And let's talk a little bit about that famous encounter. Sure, and, and what's ironic about that was uh, Washington was seeing New Jersey troops under Maxwell who had retreated without orders. They had retreated through the woods. So, you know, they weren't gonna march all in columns, but actually all of the troops under Lee's command, none of them had been, were, were captured by the British. No, no colors were captured. It was a very, it was a good retreat. It's not easy to do a retreat and the British were on their tails the whole time, but actually it was very well done to retreat and it really showed how von Steuben's training at, at Valley Forge had, had helped. Um, but yeah, that Washington saw these um, uh, people retreating and the soldiers retreating. He, that's the last thing he wanted to see. He wanted, he, th he knew that Lee had hesitated to attack uh, early on, um, but um, because uh, he said, well, why should we attack the British army at all? Let's let them go on a bridge of gold in New York City and we'll, we'll join up with the French and then we'll, then we'll be able to fight them. But um, so that was Washington's perspective. Although if you look at the record, Washington did get some reports from some of his aides about what was going on. Uh, so it's not totally true to say that Washington was entirely surprised by the situation. He, uh, you know, he had been told that I think Clinton had turned around and was coming after him and Cornwallis was coming after him. So they had this great, uh, the famous exchange. Um, and uh, unlike um, a lot of uh, myths, there was no swearing. Uh, Washington used strong language. Sir, what is the meaning of this retreat? And Lee was taken aback. Well, he thought he had done a good job by ordering a retreat and uh, he was make, about to making a stand at the hedgerow. And uh, so he was, of course, a very proud man. So he was upset as well. So it was a difficult situation, but no swearing. Now, Charles, uh, Charles Scott, after the battle, 
that's a different situation. Maybe we can talk about that later. Yeah, definitely. Uh, because that's obviously what everybody remembers about this encounter is what's written by two men who uh, were not even present at that spot yeah. happening in right. decades. Yeah, Charles later. Scott. Yeah, he remembered. Uh, you know, he was, of course, Lee tried to make him in the court martial, tried to make him the villain, but Scott instead succeeded in making Lee the villain. But still, Lee got his punches in, so Scott didn't forgive him. And when Scott was an old man in the, in the 19th century, he told this story about, uh, oh, Washington swore. He swore uh, like an angel from heaven. Well, sorry, angels don't swear. So he insulted religion there. Um, and he insulted Washington by saying that Washington swore because Washington didn't swear. Uh, we have the testimony. That's one of the great things about having the court martial testimony it occurred you know, only a couple of weeks after the battle. And we have all this testimony about that meeting and none of them talk about swearing or you know that, that kind of harsh words. Uh, it was the tone more than anything else uh, that upset Lee, not, not the uh, swearing. So Scott was conniving even in his old days to reinvent history there. But so many historians buy that and uh, they buy that Lee uh, had a chance to, for a great victory at Monmouth and he let it go and that uh, Washington swore at him uh, even looking at um, uh, the Hamilton, the great Broadway show, which I love, uh, but it does, it's pretty harsh on Charles Lee. He's, he's uh, you know, he's, he's made out to be, uh, you know, he, he lost, they, they gained a neutral outcome from the potential jaws of victory. You know, they could have won, but Lee screwed up. And even the, uh, the AMC miniseries turn their portrayal of uh, Charles Lee is that he was just a bumbling idiot and a, a malicious traitor as well, that he, he had planned to, to force the, uh, the Americans to retreat that day. So Washington yeah. uh, would lose this battle. So never, yeah. never, never uh, looked up <laughs> with any Thanks sort for of- for a good battle. TV show. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because again, like you mentioned, as Lee has made the villain during his court martial, he is naturally, I guess, a, a good villain because he's, like you say, your title, he is George Washington's nemesis. Yes. And, um, after the, the battle, he made the mistake of basically saying it's a contest. Well, let's see who's right. Who, who made the better decisions or mom, me or you. So he's making it a contest, uh, insulting Washington. And you weren't going to beat Washington at that point. He, he just didn't realize that. Because yeah, even after. Very impetuous. And he made a lot of mistakes when he would just come out with some of these outbursts. And um, back to uh, the Battle of Monmouth that day, uh, a lot of people had the myth is that immediately Lee is relieved of command and sent to the rear after that meeting. Not true. He stays right there on the battlefield and organizes a rear guard so Washington can prepare the main American defense defenses on what is known as uh, Perrin Ridge. Well, we successfully buy some time for Washington, and he's right there in the thick of the fighting, too. Some of the the bloodiest and, and vicious fighting of the entire Battle of Monmouth near the hedgerow. And he is, in fact, after his men are finally driven back, one of the last men uh, to leave that part of the battlefield on that side of uh, what is known as the West Morass. That's right. Um, well summarized. And um, uh, a lot of people think at Monmouth that the main action was afterwards when Washington ordered Wayne to uh, attack uh, or in the New England regiments to attack. But by then, the British had already retreated. There were a couple of British, it was a British regiment that hadn't quite retreated. So they got uh, stuck in an awkward situation, but that was not the main battle. The main action is even John Lawrence and Alexander Hamilton would say 
was at the hedgerow where Lee set up his defense. And uh, it was pretty, a real good showing by the Americans, um, uh, Rhode Island Regiment, Connecticut Regiment, 10 rounds of just pouring fire. Some of the British said it was the most fire they'd ever come across. Uh, Henry Knox uh, and some of his subordinates played with the cannon in an excellent fashion. So it was, it was uh, impressive, but the numbers were too many. And so Lee had to retreat over this bridge, over morass, but they all retreated safely. No one was caught on the, on the wrong side of the bridge. And so now Lee arrives back to Perrin Ridge and he is ordered to return to Englishtown with his vanguards, reorganize them. So that will be Lee's last role that he plays in the Battle of Monmouth. Yeah, he's, he's essentially out of the battle at that point and gets himself in trouble because uh, he was told that um, the Americans had won the battle. And, oh, that's not true. And the British are just resting. And so he put his foot in his mouth there, which came out during the court martial and was not, not well received. <laughs> well, he's really good at doing that. That's one of his many talents for sure. Uh, speaking of foots in the mouth, let's now move on to after the Battle of Monmouth. So the Continental Army retires to Englishtown. They've just uh, won this victory against the British, although the British do continue their march to New York City. So strategically speaking, it's not really a victory, but morally and tactically, it certainly is. Definitely uh, one of the most important victories of the war up to that point. But now Washington and Lee are back in Englishtown with the army. And at this point, you argue that the best thing for Lee uh, and Washington to have done as well, Lee to just let this whole thing go. His, his honor has been slighted at this point. Uh, because of that confrontation, he feels that he needs an explanation or an apology at least. And thought if, if you said that if Washington and Lee would have kind of just met in person in secrecy and resolved this, right. it would have been fine. Or if Lee just would have said nothing and got over it. Right. Yeah. And Washington didn't understand what was going on. Uh, he was being fed bad information by Wayne, Anthony Wayne. Uh, who did was not his best battle, uh, intentionally bad information from Charles Scott, I think. So um, uh, he did not have the full story. Uh, and uh, Charles Lee should have made sure that Washington had his side of the story, but in, instead he um, just uh, he got very upset. And, and there were rumors going around that Lee had retreated uh, in an unnecessary fashion, that he failed to attack the enemy and it just drove Lee crazy. So he finally wrote this scathing letter to Washington full of insults and saying, if it wasn't for me, the Continental Army wouldn't have, uh, uh, would have been a lot worse off. And uh, you've got all these dirty earwigs whispering in your ear. Great word. Um, those, are, those would be Alexander Hamilton, John Lawrence, Anthony Wayne, et cetera. Uh, so Washington did not appreciate that. And uh, ultimately, and, and Lee said, look, you know, give me a court martial let me, or a court of inquiry, clear my name. And Washington said, all right, he asked for it. So he said, all right, you are charged with uh, in a court-martial um, failing to attack the enemy, an unnecessary and shameful retreat and insulting the commander in chief. So Lee was in for it now. He realized now for the first time that his impetuosity uh, got him in trouble. So now we begin the uh the court martial right after that, almost immediately right after this happens. Okay, yeah. like July 4th, it begins. Lee, he's very well, uh, he believes that he's going to be able to clear his name in this. And, and at the time, you did not really need a defense attorney or anything. You could serve as your own uh, attorney. And right. as a lawyer, 
Um, this part, I would think, had to be probably the most fun and interesting for you to actually uh, dissect all of this testimony uh, and tackle it from your perspective, from your profession. Uh, kind of tell us about your approach when analyzing this testimony, because you do go a lot into your book about what can be taken with a grain of salt, what can be seen as undeniable evidence. Yeah, and, and uh, anytime you go to court, that's when, you know, the BS stops pretty much. Um, uh, people are hesitant in general to, to lie intentionally. It might shade things one way or another, but it's, uh, you know, the bluster leaves when you're in court. And um, also, if you have a witness who is favors the other party, let's say favors Washington, but gives testimony favorable to Lee, that has a lot more credibility. And Henry Knox, for example, thought that Lee actually did a good job. And of course, he's well known as being a great friend of Washington, but he testified in favor of Lee. So uh, that was important. Um, what was really fun was trying to nail down why did the uh, retreat happen? Who was responsible? And uh, um, was Lee's decision to retreat justified? And uh, you, know, you could see all the, the great testimony on John Mercer, his aide, when he said uh, he couldn't find uh, Maxwell or Scott. And then he looks up the road and he sees uh, you know, thousands of British troops massing and marching down the road. I mean, he knew this, he was in trouble at that point. So um, that was obviously pretty dramatic. And then also there was a scene where another one of his aides was talking with Scott and Scott says, no, these, these two brigades over here, they're retreating. And, and the aide says, no, I don't think they are. I think they're going to Freehold. No, they're retreating and I'm gonna retreat. So that was really one of the key moments of the, of the, of the day of battle. So as a, you know, a defense attorney, did Lee actually defend himself well during this court martial? He did. I mean, he definitely brought up all the uh, all the points, but as usual, he was too insulting, <laughs> and he paid for it afterwards because he got into these uh, you know had challenges of duels. He he would always say things with a kernel of truth, but he was too harsh, tough. For example, Vince uh, von Steubman, uh, you know, he obviously did a great job training the troops, and there was a statue of him at Monmouth, the Battle of Monmouth uh, Park, one of Lee. Uh, but, I, you know, I think Stoyman deserves it. But he really didn't do anything in the battle. And Lee even said, oh, he was a distant spectator in the battle. That's true, but kind of harsh. <laughs> so after the battle, Stoyman uh, challenges him to a duel. You insulted my honor. Uh, so uh, fortunately, they, they avoided it. And uh, speaking of duels, uh, Charles Lee and John Lawrence, one of Washington's aides, actually get into a duel as well, right? Yeah, they actually fought one. Uh, Lee uh, Lawrence and Alexander Hamilton were both great opponents of um, of Lee, and uh, they had some very tense moments uh, um, uh, during the testimony. Lawrence actually got upset because after Lee was convicted and after uh, his conviction was approved by Congress, Lee just let loose on Washington, an extremely insulting article, and saying that Washington didn't win any battles, and any battles that were won were won by his subordinates, and Lawrence got upset and challenged him to, to a duel. Under the Code Duello, that wasn't permitted. And only the principals could do that. But uh, Lee was upset at what Lawrence had said about him at the trial. So he went along with the duel. And uh, Lawrence actually um, uh, wounded him slightly in the chest. Uh, but fortunately, that was, that was it. And also, Anthony Wayne, um, Lee uh, uh, 
kind of made mocked uh, Anthony Wayne a little bit. Wayne had been in the center. He kept on calling for more troops, more troops. Well, that's not the lead. Just wanted to have Wayne just contain the British rear guard in the center. And then the main force was going to circle around and capture the British troops. So he was kind of making fun that every, you know, Wayne thought he was the main general in the army and he wanted all the troops and, and his way. And so Wayne got upset at that and challenged him to a duel. So <laughs> fortunately they didn't, they didn't duel. And actually they wound up being pretty good friends and uh, Lee congratulated Wayne after uh, 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 Stony Point. Okay. So speaking of uh, kind of the subordinates under uh, Lee, that day, uh, ERW's own Phil Greenwald has a question. Uh, he said, did any of Lee's subordinates, uh, i.e. Charles Scott, get a pass for their conduct uh, that that of, because of the retrograde um, that subsequently led to Lee's court-martial? And I think, as you said, Scott kind of turned um, Lee into the villain rather than him being the one who was at fault. What right. about the and, other? And, right. And, uh, you know, you could read the court-martial testimony, as Washington did, and you can clearly see it was mostly Scott's fault and also Maxwell's fault. Um, but Washington never punished them. Uh, matter of fact, Scott got kind of a promotion afterwards. He got put in charge of an advanced light artillery unit, a light uh, um, uh, infantry unit. And uh, Maxwell was always kind of a favorite of his as well. So no, they, they definitely did get a pass. Yeah. They were very loyal to Washington. That was of course an important consideration. So Lee was a scapegoat, but almost had his own doing. Uh, and speaking yeah. that, you know, what do you think ultimately led um, to things going against Lee here? Because, you know, in your book, you argue he, out of the three accounts, he really can argue against two of them very well. It's the last one about disrespecting the commander in chief that he really doesn't have much of a defense to. Uh, do you think the final decision of him being uh, found guilty in all three accounts was fair? Or was he a victim of politics because he really made it a spectacle to turn this into a political uh, fight between him and Washington? Right. I think you put your finger on it. He, he turned it into a political contest between him and Washington. Washington was clearly the most important person in the Continental Army, the Continental cause, the cause of independence. Wasn't Lee. Uh, and everyone knew it, except Lee and a few people around him. Um, so only one of them could survive in that kind of environment, and uh, Lee was a scapegoat. Now, the court-martial members only suspended Lee for one year. Well, he was convicted of not attacking the enemy and, and uh, an unnecessary retreat. They did take off the shameful retreat part. Uh, but um, if that was true, then he should have been shot. Uh, but instead, they gave him a one-year suspension, which really... You know, in retrospect was for his insulting the commander in chief. So that, that, that's why uh, they didn't really believe he was guilty of the first two, but they didn't want to say he was not guilty because that might, that would uh, hurt Washington. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, so Lee himself, in your book too, you argue it, it was his sarcasm too that did not help him at all. You mentioned uh, the insult that he had during it to uh, von Steuben. Do you have any other favorite insults that you like to share? I know you wrote an article about this. Yeah, the top 10 uh, quotes from Lee. He was such a, a, a Serb, had such an acerbic pen. But yeah, we talked about this. Uh, there was William Drayton from South Carolina. They didn't get along very well. So I'm, I'm quoting Reed from my book here. And um, Drayton had led the charge in Congress to approve Lee's conviction. So Lee did not like him. 
And uh, Lee, this was the only time that Lee was looking for a, uh, a uh, duel. So Lee wrote Drayton, until very recently, I was taught to consider you only a fantastic, pompous, dramatis persona, a mere malvolio, never to be spoken of or thought of, but for the sake of laughter. And when the humor for laughter subsided, never to be spoken of or thought of more. But I find I was mistaken. I find that you are as a malignant, a scoundrel as you are universally allowed to be ridiculous and disgusting coxcomb. So yeah, pretty harsh. <laughs> Get away with words, definitely. <laughs> Drayton, Drayton didn't take him up on the duel, so. Between that and the earwigs. <laughs> yeah. So, Lee is now, which is, this is a sad thing, I think, uh, another tragedy, at least in Lee's life, is uh, you talk a lot about it, how since he is a soldier of fortune, this, ar the arming is his life. You know, besides that and his dogs, he's obviously single. So after he's um, sent out of the Continental Army, he really doesn't have much to return to. Um, so right, he, and he, he uh, went to his farm life. that he bought in Virginia. It's actually um, in Leestown, West Virginia. You can still see it. Yeah, he lived in a very small portion of what the house is now and didn't have uh, any uh, dividers in the rooms and uh, it was hardly any furniture. He was not a successful farmer. Uh, yeah, and, and even during the trial, you know, Hamilton, um, it was said some, by some that Hamilton lied in the trial, but actually Hamilton told the truth and actually helped Lee's cause uh, for the most part. But Hamilton and Lawrence both said, oh, he lost his composure during the battle. Oh, that really upset Lee. And that's what caused a lot of the rancor and anger uh, during the trial. And every witness that that Lee brought up, he would say, was I not uh, perfectly, um, uh, you know, composed and, and um, well-behaved? You know, they had all these code terms. And everyone said yes, except for Lawrence and Hamilton. That was very important to his person, persona to be a in control and a good battlefield commander, which he was. Yeah, and as we've been talking about um, the Lee that not only do we have a beginning of the war Lee and the end of his service Lee, but you have an on the battlefield Lee and an off the battlefield Lee, um, where they're basically two different personalities. Exactly. The off the battlefield Lee was impetuous, uh, arrogant, uh, pretty erratic, which is you know, not a good thing if you're a general. So I think uh, in your book, to kind of start to wrap this up, uh, you argue that uh, Lee, you know, potentially helped win the Battle of, of Monmouth Courthouse. How even though he committed this outrageous treason, um, the court-martial was extremely unfair, and he doesn't get the credit that he should deserve, which I think is well when it comes to Monmouth uh, and his early war service, too. Um, do you think Lee's legacy will ever be changed? Because even now, for somebody so, you know, kind of larger than life, at least in his own mind, um, he's kind of a footnote in history, even when it comes to the Revolutionary War. Mm. Um, for someone who, who was the second in command of the Continental Army uh, and then goes through one of the, the longest court-martial of that entire conflict, uh, he really is forgotten by the general public. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, the people who are listening to this obviously are interested in the Revolutionary War, and I encourage you to read the book and come to your own conclusions about him. Um, it's going to be tough to change the mindset about him because uh, you have all these popular histories out there. It's always good to make you know someone evil and someone's good. Lee's easy to make evil. Uh, 
Hamilton, you have this popular show, Broadway show Hamilton that makes Lee look like a fool. So it, that's a lot harder. You know, Mark Lender obviously did a book uh, that sympathized with Lee. You did, I did. Uh, but that's, you know, uh, Hamilton Broadway show has a lot more power. Yeah. <laughs> but for those who are listening to the show, I think um, I think there will be a change, actually. Good. Well, uh, you know, I guess it's just up to future historians to continue trying to to build on uh, this interpretation of Lee that, you know, when it comes to the American Revolution, our history is based around a lot of myths and a lot of stuff written long after the fact, where with your book, you know, you go straight to the primary sources of those court martials uh, papers, which were written right after. And those are the best sources yeah. that you can have. And it's it's two-sided testimony. It's not one person writing. Right, so you get right, exactly. At it. That's why it is, a, yeah. it is a very, 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 very valuable uh, primary source. Having having a trial is still one of the best ways to get at the truth. <laughs> and because these people are actually arguing back and forth with each other, it makes it a lot easier rather than getting an account of somebody who was over here and somebody who was over here and trying to connect the dots in between. No, right, and writing of, three months later, writing 30 years later. Yeah, Yeah. no, they're just doing the arguing for us. <laughs> it's very good. So uh, I want to thank you again, Christian, for being part of uh, this Rev War Revelry with us tonight. Uh, it's been an awesome talk. I hope everybody enjoyed this this kind of new look, you can say, into Charles Lee. Uh, if you do get the chance, please take the time to read this book. Uh, it will change your perspective, in my opinion. There's a lot of strong and sturdy arguments in here. And as I mentioned, he goes right to the primary sources and lets them do the talking as any good historian should, approaching it objectively. Now, before we wrap up, uh, I wanna give a shout out to our friends over at the Braddock Road Preservation Association who have their, their 2020 French and Indian War seminar coming up on November 7th. It is gonna be done remotely this year um, but there will be some fantastic speakers as well as some fantastic discussion panels throughout Saturday, November 7th. If you are interested in signing up for this event, that will be done again remotely. You can visit uh, braddockroadpa.org and from there, go to their page for the seminar to sign up. So it's not too late for that. And as for Emerging Revolutionary War, next Sunday at 7 p.m. here on Facebook, we are going to be doing a Zoom on Virginia, 1781. I'll be focusing on Gloucester Point, Spencer's Ordinary, Greenspring, and of course, Yorktown. This will kind of be a preview for our ERW annual trip, which will be coming up the following weekend after that, so just two weeks away. Uh, you can look out that weekend for Facebook Live videos from those sites and more. We're going to have our crew out there as well as some fantastic special guests to help us out to interpret those sites. So from Emerging Revolutionary War, I want to thank Christian again for being on here, and I want to thank everybody for joining us and I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday evening. Thank you. Thank you, Billy. Real pleasure. Great job. Thank you can just bring it ERW.